Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast, the official podcast of thepinksmoke.com. My name is John Cribbs. I am the co-creator, co-host of The Pink Smoke. And today I am joined by Eric Frender, our good friend, Emmy Award winning editor, writer, filmmaker, and uh, recently uh, host of a new series. And you're going to have to tell me what this thing is, man, because I never knew, I never heard of uh, Substack before until you told me what it was. So what have you been up to, Eric? Tell us. Uh, I'm the wrong person to describe what Substack is, but it's basically like a forum for writers to sort of control their own destiny and not work off of, um, you know, not own their own work and put it out there. And it's, but um, I'm using it less for writing. I'm sort of using it as a place to host. I've just been doing, um, I DJ on the side when I'm not editing and doing all the other things you just mentioned. And I've been using it to sort of put out monthly mixes. They're all curated from vinyl sources. And it's just an opportunity to, hopefully get introduced to some new music or hear some stuff that you already know but recontextualize in a new way and uh so it's the show's called midnight in the guest room and you can go to midnight in the guest room.substack.com and it's a free subscription and you'll just get a new approximately hour-long mix every month and it comes with the newsletter on substack and john has actually kindly participated in this month's newsletter. Uh, it's a new feature we're doing called Three Things, where artists and collectors and people I know are sort of just talking about three things that they're into lately. And John wrote a super awesome uh, post for us this month. So, so anyway, the basic idea is it's, it's curated kind of mix tape. It's a curated, it's a mixtape. Yeah, it's instead of using, you know, the Spotify algorithm, you're just going to let me DJ for you for an hour, basically. Very cool. Yeah, I was really excited to check it out. I, again, was uh, uh, just getting to listen to it and hear some good tunes. It was uh, super fun. So the mixes, the, mixes, check it out. the mixes are also hosted on SoundCloud, but the, the, having them delivered every month, it's midnightinthegestroom.substack.com. Very cool. And it's been too long since we've had you on the show, man. I mean, you've contributed to the website before. You know, you're a longtime friend, obviously. And we've had you on some great episodes, including one about Tangerine Dream and another one about the films of uh, Fassbender, which is kind of a funny combination of the two when you consider what we're talking about today, because obviously Tangerine Dream did the score for Thief. And the whole sort of concept of doing this episode was based on this quote that I'm going to read uh, from an interview or a story about Michael Mann. It says, uh, in a June 1986 press conference, Mann said that the first season of Crime Story, his show, would go from Chicago to 1963 in Las Vegas in 1980. He said, it's a serial in the sense that we have continuing stories. In that sense, the show is one big novel. Mann and Reininger's inspiration for the 1963-1980 arc came from their mutual admiration of the epic 15-plus-hour film Berlin Alexanderplatz by German director Rainer Werner Fassbender. Man said, the pace of our story is like the speed of light compared to that, but that's the idea. If you put it all together at the end, you've got one hell of a 22-hour movie. And I love that quote because I read it before I saw any of Crime Story, which is what we're talking about. We're talking about the pilot episode of the 1986 series Crime Story. Uh, and that immediately hooked me. Obviously, you're throwing out things like Berlin Alexander Platz, and he's got this German collaborator who's a big fan of that. And the idea of in 1986, changing the format of television to really be one long story, you know, to have it be a serialized, more of a serialized sort of thing than have self-contained episodes was a really exciting idea. And I know that, you know, for a while, 
neither of us had actually seen it. And uh, finally, we both ended up uh, get, getting into it and watching it, which is why I wanted to talk to you about it. But Eric, I wonder, I wah, 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 wonder, what are your <laughs> initial thoughts on, uh, on, on, this, on this show? You know, it's funny. It's, it is nice that it sort of brings together a lot of obsessions that you and I share, Tangerine Dream, Berlin Alex, you know, Fassbender, Michael Mann. I think watching it now, I mean, it's really interesting that it, I'm not a television historian, but it, it predates even Twin Peaks and the idea of doing like a primetime serial crime story type thing, right? And that's mm -hmm. obviously like now that we're where we are in 2022, that's what everything is trying to be. And this was this in a lot of ways a prototype for that. But watching Crime Story now and then in preparation for the show, I went back and I watched a bunch of man's other television work, a lot of pilots, some of the newer ones and some of the older ones. And I just struck by how much the man's obsessions play out over a career. And, you know, God willing, we're going to get a couple more Michael Mann feature films. I know he's filming Ferrari right now, or I don't know if that's actually what it's called, but uh, that's the yeah, We're in a bit of a Michael Mann resurgence right now, which is very invigorating. We've got Tokyo Vice, obviously. We've got the Ferrari movie in production, and he's written this new novel, uh, Heat 2. It feels Which like the PR out. team is in overdrive, actually, right now <laughs> is what it feels like. They re somebody really wanted to sell a lot of copies of Heat, too. And I think, you know, and, and also there was the 25th. Well, I don't think it was actually the 25th anniversary, but because of COVID, they sort of pushed it a little bit. But they did an anniversary screening and the 4K restoration of Heat as well. Yeah, no, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. But Which is which great because, I, you know, with Black Hat and Public Enemies kind of flopping. He feels like he's been off the radar for a while. I was right. worried after Black... And flopping, is, we should be clear, when we say these things flopped, we mean uh, at the box office financially. I actually saw Black Hat again randomly because they were just doing... I don't know what the series was, but that new Alamo Draft House that's in lower Manhattan was playing it on a day that I happened to have off. And so I saw Black Hat in the theater at 2 o'clock on like a Friday. And it's not heat. And it's not The Insider and it's not Thief. But I will tell you that very few films, not Michael Mann films, any films, go as fucking hard as Black Hat. The end sequence when he's got to like, he's basically prepping for a prison fight. He like just duct tapes phone books to his chest and he sharpens screwdrivers and he just <laughs> fucking breaks that dude's arm and shivs him like 30 times. It's, I've, I've never seen anything like that. It's brutal. The movie is good. I also got to see Black Hat at the BAM screening that must have been six or seven years ago now where he showed his preferred edit. The studio reorganized the structure of the film in a way that made it make less sense. It's still a little bit of confusing of a film and it's still a little bit weird to have uh, Thor as the, you know, hacker. <laughs> but um, I think that movie is gets... Uh, I think like Miami Vice, I think it's going to be remembered better in the future than it was upon its initial release. But I'll tell you like what was really dispiriting to me was uh, I remember reading an interview around the time that he was making Collateral. And, you know, he'd obviously done The Insider and Ali, which were pretty much prestige films. I mean, like kind of award, you know, grabbing films. Then he did Collateral and everyone kind of wanted to know, like, what, why'd you go back to doing a movie like this? And his response was like, well, you know, Ali was not a huge hit. You know, Insider, even though it was well-received, was not a huge hit. And if you have three strikes in a row, you're out. Like, that's it in this industry. Like, you've got to keep making hits. That's what you got to do. And so after Public Enemies and Black Hat, 
you know, scrape the bottom of the barrel at the box office. It was like, oh no, like, was he right? Like, is this, are his, like, these are like two huge strikes that constitute a strikeout for him and is he done? And so in the last year, just seeing like his name pop up again has been really cool. And even though, you know, I was really cynical going into Heat 2, thinking like this is going to be like a cash grab or some easy money thing. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really fun Michael Mann story. It really feels, I mean, again, but his preoccupations are playing out over and over again. Like he's so obsessed with Ciudad de Estes, like the um, mm-hmm. the tri-borders of Paraguay. Yeah, Mexicali, and, right. Yeah, exactly. Like all these places, like he set all this stuff in Miami Vice there, the, the film, not the TV show. And then I guess he's just still obsessed with it. So he just wrote that into Christian Harrelitz's, you know, future plot of, of Heat 2 or whatever. I mean, I thought all that stuff, I, I think the structure of the book, because of what he was trying to do, doesn't fully succeed because you end up bouncing back and forth between these two stories that are only in the loosest sense connected by the film, which happens in the middle. But each individual piece is fascinating and works. And it's hopping problem, around between Chicago and L.A. and Vegas, all of his favorite haunts. I think that the problem you run into with some of this is like the film, it's like the problem with any kind of prequel thing. I don't like there's an element of mystery. Like, why is Neil the way he is? Well, I don't know. I mean, he sort of explains like, oh, someone taught him this on the yard and then everything's a mystery and it makes him a cool character. And then then this in Heat 2, you get this backstory, which seemingly explains why he doesn't want to have any attachments, which is like the story itself is super cool because you're going like they're trying to. Like the idea of like a heist where you're raiding this, you know, these uh, the cartels stash house in Mexico, that's dope. But then the (laughs) idea that he like loses somebody and that's what informs his psychology. Dude, I don't care. I don't (laughs) I like I'd rather have the mystery of characterization like it was worked. I've, I've lived with Heat for 25 years. Never once have I been like, how did Neil get this way? Like, why? Why is he? You know, like, I don't I don't care. I think that's something you could say about almost any Michael Mann project, though, is the <laughs> things with the love interest and, and, you know, the female character is unfortunately not quite as not quite as well thought out and, and you know, as involving as as the, the main plots most of the time. I think maybe Thief is probably the best example of like a good love story, like an interesting kind of attempt of this guy like to have like a normal life and a normal relationship that kind of doesn't work out because of who he is. But since then, it's kind of been sidelined and it's always kind of less interesting but so i kind of agree with you on that but it's so much fun though because it's written like a novelization you know it really feels like it's written in present tense it's very you know action oriented and almost feels like script to page you know sort of action and it's so much fun for me to like imagine like okay so what robert de niro in 1988 am i supposed to be imagining jackknife era robert de niro (laughs) right uh willow era Val Kilmer here. Yeah, you know, I was oh, doing. We, I was we doing had the a lot of Judd it. character. We had the Ashley Judd character back. So Joanne Whaley Kilmer would play her back. In <laughs> um, I was doing a lot of that too. And again, like with what I was saying before, they did a good job. Like it really, they were really smart to just start the day after uh, the events of of the film at the at the the brief first section because it really like. I, it's not Al Pacino, it's a character on the page, but you're really like, they did a good job of mimicking Pacino's performance and the speech. There's a couple of phrases that work again. At one yeah. point in the middle of the book, he's got to hustle a CI and he gives you, the, you know, or like there's a couple of lines that are actually like, what do you got? Like there's a couple of actual lines. You callbacks. Yeah. yeah, that let you like, oh, right. I hear the, like you can hear the voice. It really feels like you're living in the world of the film. And obviously, I mean, 
I definitely in college went through a period where I was obsessed with the insider. But if you ask me what Michael Mann film I've seen the most, I still no longer think it's the most interesting Michael Mann film, but just because of the virtue of I discovered it when I was in high school, I've seen heat more than I've seen. Miami Vice is getting close to giving it a run for its money, but like I've obviously liked living in this world of heat because I've watched this movie upwards of whatever, 20 times. So, you know, yeah, it's fun to get a new dimension to it. Yeah. It's just a film that you can just immediately kind of just throw on like an old sweater, you know, just, just live in that world. All the characters are just so everyone has a moment. Like this is the thing, like even minor characters, everyone, even, you know, Henry, Henry Rollins gets thrown through a window. Like everyone gets something to do in that well, movie that makes the, you remember them. Uh, the G what, where the fuck did this heat come from? Like after they, uh, they have to walk away from the, the precious metals heist, that scene, even when I was a kid, I loved that scene. Like the interplay that's playing out behind their eyes, Val Kilmer, knowing not to like, uh, not Val Kilmer, Christian Harris knowing he shouldn't say anything, but he really wants Mike to get in on it because he needs this score. Just Sizemore's moment. I mean, his thought process, it's almost a little overplayed, but it's super cool. And I, I just, the idea that, you know, Neil is like, no, you should back out. And he doesn't do it anyway. And, you know, for me, yeah. the action is the juice. I love that whole sequence. It's great. And then it's followed up by what I think is probably the best scene in any Michael Mann movie, you know, where they trick the cops into like, you know, revealing themselves. They're looking at us. Is just every time, as soon as you see Vincent Hanna, as soon as he's like processing it and realizing it, it goes over Pacino's face. That moment is just ah, you just love that film. Well, because he gets psyched, and that you know, it really that's the thing that makes the middle sequence or not the middle sequence that the 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 meeting at the diner work, right? Like you mm -hmm. see the respect, like he's like, I'm gonna kill this guy, but. You got to give it to them. You know what I mean? Like it transcends what they're doing. That's the other thing in Heat too. There's a little bit more of the, like a lot of movies do this. Like, oh, the cops and robbers are the flip side of the same coin. But in the book, he fucking, he throws a guy off a roof. I don't want to spoil anything, but <laughs> I don't know. Like Hannah straight up throws some dude just, off a roof. Just murders a motherfucker. He doesn't do that in Heat. Exactly. The other we'll definitely, though, that'll definitely come up again when we're talking about crime story. But yes. uh, yeah. <laughs> And I also watched L.A. Takedown just in preparation for this to kind of like, you know, kind of remind, remind me of the kind of two films. And it was funny because one line, you know, there are a lot of lines in Heat that are kind of like really straddle the like awesome, cheesy factor where, you know, you kind of roll your eyes, but you're like, that's awesome. Like that was an awesome line, even though you kind of recognize what a cheesy thing to like write and have somebody say. I mean, I, you know, I'm <laughs> I love the movie enough to admit that the one line that I noticed is an L.A. Takedown. And is not in heat is the scene with the uh, the vet where he takes Chris after he's been shot he takes Chris to the vet and he says to him I'm I'm going to need double because this is like double the risk for me to like to treat this guy and what uh, Neil says to him is um uh it's uh, he, puts a huge, he puts a huge stack of money in front of me he says it's four times the risk because I'm double the trouble you could ever imagine right I'm double the worst trouble you ever had <laughs> so watch right. I also watched LA Takedown to prep for this. And which my my deep, dark secret confession, which I'll now just, you know, get off my chest here, is that I had never seen L.A. Takedown, despite my Michael Mann obsessions, I, partially as a result of it being sort of difficult to find years ago. And and then recently, just because you know, I, I don't know, I don't have an excuse, but I've seen it's it. The kind now. Of thing you can imagine man like trying to bury on purpose. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. Like like all the dead horses from the luck from the luck series. Just, we don't want. <laughs> Nobody wants to talk about that and we'll just we'll just ignore it. But the funny thing is that I heard that line and I'm like, 
wait, 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 wait. First of all, that's a classic man line because you can, I want to write, or I used to want to write um, a piece for the Pink Smoke called Sifting Through the Detritus, Lost Dialogue from Michael Mann Films. Because he's like Lucas. This dude puts out a, like, the, the, like the new version of Heat every six years and lines come and go. I have three or four versions of Last of the Mohicans that I own on physical media. And there's a line at one point where like when uh, whatever, you know, Hawkeye and his, the crew arrive at the fort and the one guy's like, Hawkeye, I thought you weren't joining up. And he goes, I didn't. I just dropped in to see how you boys were doing. Yeah, Which I remember sounds, that line. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's not in the movie anymore. If you see oh, it, okay. it's well, too anachronistic. Yeah, <laughs> then, you know, exactly. Like, that's like, wait a minute, Daniel Day-Lewis is alive in 1991, and that's why he's saying that. But that's the sifting through the detritus line that Diane Venora says in Heat. That's been gone from the last two or three home video editions. Like, little things change over time because he keeps re-editing them and perfecting them. And I think it's weird. The, Which is the reason we're talking yeah. about this is the double the worst trouble line. Yeah. I recognized it and I couldn't figure out where. And then I realized it's in the trailer. Yes. It's in the trailer. And there's also another line from the uh, from the crime scene sequence, which is awesome in heat. Mm. When he did, the shape charge indicates that they are technically proficient. That scene, there's a line in the trailer that I can't remember what it is now, but Pacino says something that's not in the movie anymore. I don't know what I'm babbling about, but, but his, <laughs> his dialogue that you're talking about, that sometimes you're like, this is bad. And Pacino can do it because he can like sort of go over the top and make it work in a way. And then, but there's people that sometimes can't do it. And like I the cast of LA takedown, like the cast of LA takedown, <laughs> but even lesser actors and some of the, like, you know, like Jamie Foxx can do it. Javier Bardem can do it like collateral works, but well, even in the, the CI scenes in both LA takedown and in heat, the, by the time I get to Phoenix scene, you know, like he, he can't kill his darlings. So much of L.A. Takedown is exactly the same dialogue as what ends up in Heat. But mm -hmm. even the lines that flopped initially, he just kept like, I'm a flamenco. I'm a dancer, man. Hitting up all these flamenco joints. You're just like, what are you talking about? And then that line is in L.A. Takedown. And you'd think he would Why do you assume like, Pacino like improvised on the set? Yeah. <laughs> no, well, this is the CI guy. This is yeah, the informant. Yeah. And you'd think he would have changed it. And it's still like, nope, we just had him say that same thing. I, I guess he tried to make it work again. but. The one but Michael, but Michael, Michael, <laughs> don't you think I should say, get killed walking your doggy? <laughs> There's a bunch of lines. I mean, in L.A. Takedown, the guy that's playing Neil, I mean, they're it's a it's a great, great example of like, this is what a great actor can do. And um, the uh, film critic for Vulture just recently wrote a whole thing about Heat and L.A. Takedown and comparing the two. And I mean, it, there's a lot of things going on here. I mean, he had, you know, a hundred million dollars more, sixty million dollars more to make the movie in an extra whatever, how many days and all that, but also just the performances. But I will say, if you're watching LA Takedown, the dude playing Neil is at least like has personality. I'm not mm -hmm. going to say he's as good of an actor as Al Pacino. He is most definitely not. But the dude playing, so the dude playing Hannah is what I was saying is good. The dude playing Neil, first of all, his name's Patrick. <laughs> The character's not named Neil, it's named Patrick. And then also, he's just like, just a black hole of charisma. Like, he just <laughs> sucks the life out of every scene he's in. He would show up, for the first 20 minutes of LA Takedown, he'd show up sometimes, and I'm like, wait, is that the guy? 
is that the guy? Like, I don't, I don't even, he just, he doesn't even look like a person. He just looks like a bland cipher. I feel bad. making Which is funny because the big difference in the conclusion, the big climax of both movies is that the Neil character in LA Takedown isn't going to get Ringo necessarily for vengeance. It's more like Edie rejects him. The, girl, the woman rejects him and takes off. So he's like, I might as well just die. It's like a suicide run, right? He's going to go to the hotel knowing that he's going to get blown away and that that's going to be it as opposed to heat where you know he genuinely wants to get there keep the girl get there bl- blow wanger away and then escape with her to new zealand or wherever they're going to go so it's interesting that he's supposed to, you're supposed to really buy the romance of la yeah. takedown like there's the, that the he that he and this girl have this sort of like really tight thing that would make him want to like if it's over then he's got nothing and he's just going to go and like let himself get blown away well, Michael Mann's so funny because he's what he's this guy who's like he wants he wants this I, I sometimes it's like hyper verisimilitude. Like he wants the actors to really engage like like uh Val Kilmer can really load that gun so much so that supposedly they like show footage from Heat of him reloading his mag during the you know the the massive street fight in the middle of the of the film to uh whatever, like the police or what like police training, because like of how good he can load his M16. But that's because he rehearses these actors so much. But so there's all this hyper realism. But then there's all these things that don't make any sense. Like one thing in Heat that I never bought was that Edie, who's supposed to, who's clearly like this pure soul, who's like conservative, like close with her family, just wants to make her little CD covers, humble, happy to just, you know, work hard and whatever. The idea that she'd ever be like, yes, this man with the prison tattoos who just murdered eight people on the street. (laughs) <laughs> or whatever you know what I mean. What and all these cops, like I'm like like after just like a semi-convincing argument, looking out over LA. Yeah, I'll just live the rest of my life with you in New Zealand. The other thing that makes no sense is, and bear with me here, but Neil is not a good thief through the entire. <laughs> the enti- we keep being told how good he is, but through the entire movie. He, first of all, in his first robbery, he hires a man named Wayne Grow, who's also a serial murderer, who he hasn't vetted, who no one on the team apparently meets until Chirito picks him up on a coffee run, like on the way to the heist. That leads to the entire disaster, right? They got to walk away from the precious metals uh, robbery it's because the one the big mistake. Them. They make yeah. a decision to try to sell the bonds back to Van Zandt, which leads to disaster, right? Like every element, the only thing he does well is turn the tables on Hannah and the sequence we were discussing earlier. But then that leads him to a coffee shop meeting with Hannah where he divulges the information that he has a woman who he's planning to walk away from, which is the only reason that Hannah recognizes where he's going to be at the hotel. Like every step along the way, he makes a terrible decision and it undoes all of his plans. I'm really, <laughs> it's a good point. I'm willing to like concede that Neil is like at the end of his tether at this point. That maybe yeah. he's just he's losing it a little bit, you know, that he's making bad judgments and that he makes one horrible judgment, and that's all you need to do when you're a professional thief to you know to have the whole tower come falling down around you is to like make this one bad choice. I would no. blame Nate more than anything, the John Voigt character based on Eddie Bunker, <laughs> whose idea it is to sell the bonds back you know, in the first place, and also is the one who calls him up to say, okay, Wingro's at this hotel. Motherfucker, just yeah. let him leave. You I'll know tell- it's a bad idea. I gotta tell you because you asked. No, you don't. You don't have to do <laughs> are that. Are you his friend or are you not? <laughs> I feel I feel 
bound by my word that I <laughs> that you asked and I had to answer. Okay, we we knew we were going to do this. We knew we were going to like get deep in, fall deep got, into this Michael I got, man. I got another hour and a half worth of just heat <laughs> if you want. I, whatever you want to do, man. But but I want to steer back over and, and start talking about crime story because, like you said, the genesis for a lot of this stuff can be found in crime story. It's remarkable to think about this this production happening in 1986 when he's doing Miami Vice and he's making Manhunter. I mean, this guy, how did he sleep, you know, in the mid 80s? I mean, he's Absolutely. just got his hands in so many pies. And well, obviously he talked about about Vice was that he wanted like this. He talked about wanting to do like Berlin Alexander plants in a series. Like, really, it's like a novel on film with Vice. The thing he kept saying was, look, we were making a feature film every week. Like we had like a six day shooting schedule and it's, I mean, it's an hour, it's not two hours, but they really wanted to treat it like they were making cinema quality work, which again is ahead of its time. Like people weren't expecting that as much um, in the mid eighties as the, you know, they are now. The idea to go to from like something that is of the quality and the time put into Miami Vice to doing something that would be literally a 40 hour <laughs> movie with crime story, you know, and, and, you know, scope you know ambition obviously being beyond that he thought that this was going to be several seasons it ended up being two uh just a little background on the show itself michael mann develops it along with chuck adamson who you know michael mann fans will know recognize as the former chicago cop who became a technical advisor on thief and who the vincent hannah character is more or less based on uh and they uh became the writer the co-writer co-creator of crime story which is set in the early 60s and uh, deals with two characters, one played by Dennis Farina, who was actually the partner of Chuck Adamson when he was a cop for 18 years in Chicago at one point. The detective's name is Mike Torello. He is contrasted with the uh, criminal uh, character, Ray Luca, who's a gangster, a heister, moving up in the Chicago world, who will eventually um, move his operations over to Vegas. And that character is based on uh, Anthony Spalatro, right? The little ant, as they call him. They called him that because an FBI agent once referred to him as the little pissant in a, a press conference, and they couldn't use little pissant in the in the, in the the uh, newspapers, so they changed it to the little ant, and it stuck. Uh, interestingly, that character is the same character that uh, the Joe Pesci character from Casino is based on. So he kind of has been, has had, has been mythologized in, in film and television quite a bit. That's the basic idea. And again, the idea was to like have, like follow this for decades literally over two decades to find these two characters Torello trying to like take him down and this is also Farina's first big thing I mean he had been a supporting character obviously in uh, Manhunter which was filming at the same time but before this he has his bit part in, in Thief and that's pretty much it Does that, that only sense? came about because Michael Michael like he's my best friend uh man only he wanted to cast a bunch of actual thieves reformed more or less but he cast a bunch of thieves as cops, I think, in Thief, and he cast a bunch of cops as criminals. So Farina is in um, is in Thief. It's his first acting role, I think, and it's as part of uh, Leo's crew. Farina's like a beloved character actor who had like a very successful acting career that lasted decades. Feels early in his career to like try to make him a leading man. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's funny because he studied at William Peterson's acting school. It turns out, you know, Peterson, of course, was the lead and, you know, they were uh, co-leads together in, in Manhunter. And uh, so anything, any, any you know, faults or, uh, you know, complaints you have about Farina's acting, I guess you can lay on Peterson's uh, door. But uh, 
but like all his films that are based on a cop crime story really finds like the compelling things about farina specifically and we, we we had talked about you know the hannah flat out murdering a guy in heat too more than once torello is about to murder something like flat out kill somebody absolutely <laughs> has to be talked down by his you know fellow officers before he does it he has a line early in the episode where there uh there's a hostage situation after a, a botched robbery and he looks at the guy and tells him, I'm going to find what you love most and kill it. And this is the lead. This is the good guy. Yeah, no, this, exactly. Just threatened to murder this guy's entire family because he's a punk, you know, thief. And, this, and that's followed by a high speed chase on a highway where there's three hostages in the back of the, you know, in the criminal car. And he ends up shooting the driver while they're driving 90 miles an hour and trying to <laughs> ram the car off the road. And his explanation is, I thought she had a better chance of surviving a car accident than she did in the car with those guys. I'm like, that is crazy. And, you know, <laughs> Logic does not hold up. Yeah. Especially since they've already had her like climb up on like the trunk of the car, like outside the car and all these insane kind of stunts. Why would you think that that was a better option? But that's um, that's where we're meeting. Uh, that's where we're meeting. This no, and he and he beats informants or suspects to get information. But that's par for the course now. And you know, it's uh, it's funny to watch him as a hero, especially in you know today's political. We don't have to get into all the politics of this, but it's funny to watch cops break the law in their view is an interest of doing the right thing and to see, you know, the way television portrays that, and then to see where we are now with trying to reevaluate all that stuff. People have said this in smarter ways than 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 i have but it's really he's fascinated with i mean the thing that turns him on is people that are good at their jobs so it mm -hmm. almost doesn't matter if you're How a cop or it. a right like it doesn't <laughs> matter what you're doing it's just like are you good at it because that's almost like in his moral universe that's the important thing like how how, how professional are you what is how strong is your skill set? Speaking of recurring themes, that dude, both characters in his movies and him himself, love to use the phrase skill set. He says it all the time, but right, you know, yeah. And I mean, in this one, we even get Torello, you know, pushing a, a guy up against the wall, neighborhood favorite who got involved with Ray Luca and uh, is involved with heists. And he tells him, he basically says the line from Heat, where he says, you know, I don't care what you know, we all think about your family we will blow you out of your socks if we catch you, you know, doing criminal acts. So, you know, we know this guy's willing to like cross the line, even if it means taking down a beloved person and someone who's close to him as well. Pauly, who is like, you know, a right-hand man to Ray Luca, is played by John Santucci, the real-life inspiration for Frank in Thief, which when you know that, you are going to be shocked to see this weasley little motherfucker I know. I know. who has got about has got as little charisma as James Kahn has you know multitude charisma uh he's this jittery sweaty little wheel man you know who, first he leaves his crew behind at the opening heights. Well, part of that's the characterization like the first <laughs> yeah. time you see him he abandons his uh his crewmates because he's like at the first sight of sirens but it is funny <laughs> to imagine watching that dude holding the burning bar in thief and you know what i mean like that dude does yeah. not look fit that guy does not look like he can do like a 12 hour safe crack you know yeah, well, the idea for the underwater burning bar that they mentioned in this uh, episode, that's from him. That was his you know, in innovation. There are so many of man, again, this is just going to be my theme for everything we talk about this episode. So many of his preoccupations that echo throughout. I mean, there's the line, um, Mike Torello is like, oh, yeah, it looks like a Jackson Pollock. 
that comes up again in Miami Vice. The idea if you blow somebody away and they splatter on the wall, it'll look like a Jackson Pollock. That can be traced back to this. When they're walking through, it's like the line from Heat where it's like, you can build a bank with these. Like that's, I feel like that scene where he's looking at the, where Caruso is showing Ray Luca the plans for the museum heist, or uh, I think it's a museum heist, right? Is that, is that correct? That's the yeah, first could, thing? I, I couldn't tell what that place was, but yeah, At whatever point, it someone is. Someone mentions a museum, so that's what I thought it was. But wherever it is, the Chicago locals will, will recognize it for sure. Yeah, exactly. There's just so many, there's just echoes over and over again. Yeah, you know what else? The, the, the painting line uh, actually made me think of the Irishman, too. You know, I hear you paint houses, you know, which is the other Pacino, De Niro, yeah. you know, prestigious, you know, team up. There's shots that echo it too. The uh, the seat, there's a shot in the back of the right before or during that high speed chase, the beginning of the high speed chase. You see Farina, and then a guy sitter, sitting uh, in the the middle seat in the back, and then everyone's loading their guns. It's an exact shot, like you could do one of those Marcus Pin style side by sides with the sheen where they're approaching the bank heist in heat. Like it's just mm-hmm. these cops are getting ready, and they're in a car too small for their shotguns, but they're loading everything up. I mean, he keeps doing these images over and over again. You know, we should mention, we should mention, it's important to mention, this episode was not directed by a man. It was actually directed by the great Abel Ferrara. Val Luton, auteur producer kind of thing, where it's yeah, like, this I don't is know how to obviously a Michael Mann production more than a Abel it Ferrara. It is obviously film. a Michael Mann production, although the first thing I have written in my notes here from my rewatch of Crime Story was that opening heist where we have the, you know, a bunch of criminals holding up a restaurant with stockings over their faces. That sequence has Ferrara energy. That sequence mm-hmm. feels like it's something out of like an early 90s, late 80s Ferrara production to me. It feels a little chaotic. It feels genuinely more dangerous than some. I, some of this might be because I wasn't, I was six. I would have been six when this first aired. So I'm not, I don't have as much of a good memory about what TV felt like. In, I'm more of a 90s sure. kid, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it feels genuinely dangerous in a way that I'm not, I'm imagining a lot of stuff from that era didn't. And to me, that's something that Ferrara is bringing to it. The funny thing about Ferrara is I don't picture him as the kind of, I picture him as like, you know, I've, I see interviews like behind the scenes documentaries of him, like editing things in like nineties, tiny studio apartments in New York, where he's also doing drugs and all that stuff. And like, I don't see him as a guy whose agent got him a couple gigs directing Miami Vice and where he did well. I'm, I, I'm sure that he did, and I don't want to uh, speak poorly about a, a cinema god like Ferrara, but like it doesn't seem like he does well like taking the taking the professional gigs. He sort of seems like a I operate in my own system kind of guy. You know? Well, it is funny that he's coming off like his exploitation films like Driller Killer and Miss 45 and getting like television gigs based on those. You would think he had made King of New York first, you know, and then yeah, people yeah, were like, yeah, oh, yeah. this guy can do a good crime movie. What what was the one that you were watching? We were on sets. You and I were shooting something like 17, 20 years ago. Was it, it's it's not crime wave. What's the, Oh, (laughs) that was like uh, the forgotten um, one. Fear city. Fear city. Fear city. I remember being on set and trying to do something. And you and a bunch of people were like taking your breather and you were just like watching fear city in the corner of the set. I was like, Oh, what is, What's going on over there? Yeah, Funderburg and I found that at a used video store, and we're just like, "What is this?" And it was this great <laughs> karate serial killer movie that is just terrific. Great film. Before we get too far away, I will say Ferrara also directed the uh, the Home Invaders episode of Miami Vice, which is also written by Chuck Adamson. Chuck Adamson also wrote an episode of Miami Vice called The Fix, directed by the great Dick Miller, of course. Oh my God, is that true? The only thing he ever directed, yeah, character actor Dick Miller from. 
Corman and uh, Joe Dante films directed I, an episode of Miami Vice written by Chuck Adamson. Uh, I, uh, I I did not know that. And I'm so happy that Dick Miller is somehow a part of this podcast that we're recording right now. <laughs> like that, I'm going to live off that happiness for 36 hours. I love Dick. Miller. I try. I try to make him part of every, everything. Yeah, so can possible. we work him into everything? And you kind of can. But before we get too far away from John Santuki, because I just read this anecdote, which I just fucking love, and I have to share on this episode. Santuki again is the guy uh, who the thief, the, the former thief that you know the James Con character was based on, and he's acting as a regular on this show. He's in literally the entire series. Michael Mann's hanging around with the producer of the show. The producer gets a call and he's like, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, Michael, like, take this call. So Michael Mann takes the call and, and the guy says, hey, where are you guys? Like, we're waiting for you to come and film here. We had like, we had, we we're all set. You're, you're, you're hours late. And Michael Mann's like, where, what are you talking? Who is this? And it turns out he finally finds out, he deduces that it is a, a warehouse that's like right next to like a, like a jewelry uh, I can't remember what it is, but like it's like a high end, like kind of like place, like a, that a thief would mark. Turns out Santuki went to this place, claim, you know, said, I'm working on the show. We're interested in your location, set up a whole thing with the guys, but he just did it to case this place next door. Like, to, like he was actually doing like criminal activity while working on the mainstream television show from Michael Mann. Like, he can't turn it off. I just love thinking about that. Like this guy was obviously a character. <laughs> I mean, I know, I don't know a ton about him but I, and I know he served his time and deserves a second chance or whatever, but like this guy was like, like a straight up master thief who was like involved <laughs> with, he's, I'm sure he's, you know, at least indirectly involved and responsible for some pretty heinous shit. So I don't know. But yeah, again, yeah. but even Michael, Man, it was like in Michael Mann of reality, it's like, well, that may be true, but, he was the best thief that we ever had in Chicago. So that's fascinating <laughs> to me. You know what I mean? And like, he's really good on the series. Like he's genuinely good as an actor too, is the other thing that like is important to bring up. Like he's perfect as a squirrely little guy. The same thing just, with Farina, right? Like yeah. it's just the idea that these people, and like I, it's a, it's an interesting skill that Michael has. Again, I'm calling him Michael. Technically, I did introduce myself to him once, so maybe it's not crazy that I'm calling him Michael and not Mr. Man. But um, <laughs> and, no, but your buddies now. Yeah, you know, we go way back to that insider screening a while ago. I have seen three films with Michael Mann in the audience with me. He he actually arrived early to personally calibrate the projector for a screening of Collateral to make sure it was getting the digital nighttime correct. Uh, that was actually Chris, your co-host and co-founder of the Pink Smoke, took me to that one. Yeah, in fact, I was going to mention how happy it would make me. I was going to mention Chris uh, said to me. Hey, Michael Mann's going to be at this collateral screening. I could take one person. I, I got to take Friender. Like, I, you know, no offense, man. <laughs> and my response was like, if you would, if you would come to me and ask me to go, I would have been like, why didn't you ask Friender first? Of course, he's the <laughs> he's the Michael Mann fan. He's the big one. Like, I would be I would be personally offended if you hadn't asked him instead of me. You guys are the best. That's why I felt guilty when you texted me the other day. You were like, had you not seen L.A. Takedown until now? I'm like, oh, no, my secret's out. <laughs> Again, um, I feel like it's something that Michael Mann's like, please don't see this. You know, no, this, was, is, I, this is a total like dress rehearsal. I was actually doing what he would want me to do, which is to never watch <laughs> L.A. Takedown. You had the um, right idea, for sure. I think, um, I think one of Michael's skills that doesn't get talked about, because it's not really on screen in the same sense as like his, you know, his shots, his scripts, his this and that is um, his ability to spot, I mean, the idea that he got Santucci and Farina 
and then turned them into, I mean, Farina more than Santucci, but th- gave them acting careers. That's like the ability to spot talent the way like, you know, it's not easy to not to spot talents, but be like, you're really good at this one thing you do, but you know what you'd be good. And the same thing with Adamson, like he believed in Adamson's writing. And that's because he knows it's like, dude, if you can take your knowledge and then the, the cadence and the way that you talk and turn it, just write it down. And and get, he probably coached him through it. And he probably helped co-wrote some of these things. But the like he gave that guy a writing career. He was able to like transition out of being a cop into like something you know, a little safer for his later years. And I think, but that's, that's a skill too. And it's a skill it's a of a leader, you know? skill. I was just thinking about Peter Bodanovich movies recently and how their biggest problem is casting. Like he just did not understand who should play this lead role. It happens again and again in his movies. And like that, it can kill a film. Like it can, fill, can kill a movie that has potential and a great script and, you know, like a, like a good crew. And it, it could be, it doesn't matter. Like if you cast Ryan O'Neill in the lead, it's going to suck. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> and so when, you know, you think about like that just sort of instinct that like, you know, someone like Michael Mann has to be like, he's going to look good on camera. He's going to be charismatic and people are going to believe like he has an authenticity to him, even if they're not exactly sure what it is. And I don't have to describe like the underwater burning bar to them in person. <laughs> they're going to know that like this guy's got like some kind of interesting cred and that can go back and forth between being a thief and for Farina being a, a, you know, a bad guy and thief and a good guy in crime story, you know, that just works both ways. But yeah, I mean, talk about the crazy cast of this film, uh, this, this film, this pilot episode, you got, you you start off with young Michael Rooker. You can call it a film, by the way, it was released in theaters, which was an experiment at the time. They did, they gave it a short theatrical release. And that was, I mean, it was obviously part of the hype machine to break it as a TV show, but they, it, it's straight up played in the movies. So anyway, yeah. go ahead. We got yeah. Rooker. You yeah. got Ken Young Rooker, who who also is in LA Takedown. We should mention plays one of the uh, the cops. He plays Bosco, which is a different cop that ends up dying. I think, and I think the script changes a little bit. And uh, doesn't whatever, doesn't yeah. die in Takedown, but when he's played by Ted Levine in Heat, he gets killed. Right, that's the character he's playing. Yeah, I might be okay. And and Levine is in this as well. <laughs> Levine looks insane. This is like proto uh, Buffalo Bill Levine. Like he's. He's skinnier than, than, you know, later years Levine. And he looks genuinely, even though he is one of the guys at the end of, of crime, the crime story pilot that makes the right decision to like mm-hmm. bail on to the, walk, try away. To bail, to walk yeah. away from the, the heist when it's going bad. He still looks insane. He looks genuinely terrifying. He must have been, it must have been wild to know Levine when he was a young, hungry actor. And like, just, he's got that. And again, just a testament to Michael Mann's casting. He's got that intensity. Absolutely. He's great. And it's funny, too, that he's in it and Stephen Lang is in it the same year he was in Manhunter. So it's almost like a future Thomas Harris film adaptation uh, pre-reunion for these guys. Caruso's Um, in it. Got Caruso, uh, who is in love with The Flash. Doesn't matter what we think about your parents. (laughs) What you want to score, we're going to blow you out of your socks. Hey, shadow and glass there and gone. The best in Chicago. But that's one of those things. That's one of those li- shadow and glass. Like, but like, it's one of these lines that Michael will write, and then you're just like, it's so distinct and so weird. It's I, I I liken it to his music choices. Like he's you know, there's like if you listen to the commentary for um 
for Miami Vice, he's like, oh, there's this great L.A. band called Nonpoint. And it's like, no, there isn't. (laughs) There is an L.A. band called Nonpoint. And you did get them to do a cover of In the Air Tonight. But it's but his music choices are so specific, like his weird obsession with Audio Slave and all this stuff. But it ends up. I am a fan of it because it becomes super distinct and it ends up working. And it also starts to exist outside of, I mean, obviously in crime story, he's using like runaway and a a bunch of period specific things to evoke the era. But in his modernist movies, his music, like heat is all experimental sounds. There's the LA Golden Doll score, but really you've got Kronos Quartet. You've got Moby covers of Joy Division. You've got the God moving over the face of the waters at the end. You've got Force Marker for the heist. I mean, it's like, it's, I find it to be and it's super experimental, but it ends up working so well in creating this sort of synthesized, very specific mood that ends up, it, it ends up like, even if you watch Miami Vice, even the way Colin Farrell's uh, the movie again, mm-hmm. when I'm saying Miami Vice, I'm almost always talking about the, the <laughs> film and not the show. Even his character's kind of design, like the costume design and the, his hair, it ex- it's not cool. But it's not uncool, and it's not like nobody was dressing like that in 2006. <laughs> to the, I mean, I don't hang out in Miami a lot, but like it just becomes this very specific weird thing that ends up not dating the movie. It ends up just taking place like it just is a part of man's universe. It's not you don't watch it and you're like, oh, this was made in the mid aughts. You just watch it and you're like, this is a Michael Mann movie. If that makes sense. That's its whole other podcast, I think, the talking about Michael Mann and musical choices in his films, which range from brilliant to horrible. <laughs> like um, when he when I read an interview after Miami Vice came out and he said, well, I put uh, this new version of uh, the Phil Collins song in, in, in the climax in the final scene, the big shootout. And they, they told me to take it out. And I'm really disappointed by that decision. And then when the director's cut came out, everyone was like, oh, I got to get the director's cut to see because he, he's, put, he's put it back in. Put it back in. And it's a disaster. It's, it's really, so badly done. It's, it's really bad and it fucks up the buildup to the yes. shootout. But that shootout also has, I mean, it doesn't have problems. I love that shootout. I just sometimes, because I know that Jamie Foxx refused to go back to outside of the country to do any more filming because he felt like he was in danger and they had to rewrite the end of the movie it now takes place in kind of like a i don't know what to call it like a dock shipyard in uh miami but it was supposed to take place by the tri-borders it was supposed to take place like somewhere else and so it's it's the the grading it's the greatest ending ever i love that ending it's it's amazing I mean, the other problem with the Miami Vice reboot, I I know that the opening shot of the director's version where it comes up slowly out of the water and it's uh, surrealistic is the wrong word, but you're just like, where am I? What is this? What am I feeling? And then you kind of rise up out of the water and a go fast boat blows past you. It's dope. But (laughs) the beginning of the theatrical version of Miami Vice where it just, there's a universal logo and then you just cut in to the middle of the club sequence and it's that jay-z lincoln park mashup song it's awesome it's the greatest opening two seconds of any move i mean i, I think about it all the time and yeah. i just i you know i i don't know i i don't have a i don't have a larger point i just sometimes no no like but to steer things back like, let me ask you like, the choice to use b.e king's stand by me for the scene in the rain where Torello goes to visit the 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 phone booth where his friend has been shot down and breaks down where would you rate that in the Michael Mann scale from uh, <laughs> from Tangerine Dream to Audio Slave? Where would you I mean, go? I'm telling you that that 
that scene is is a little bit on the nose and it's a little bit brutal and it's a little bit too like you know i mean the punch through the glass looks real it actually i watched the pilot twice in prep for this and both times i was like oh did that was it, did they put fake glass in there that looked real as hell <laughs> but uh the music choice and that that's to me that's the, i mean i like the rain i like the crane shot coming down i like his i think that's i think that's a remarkably emotional and believable performance from Dennis Farina for a guy who just four years earlier is a cop. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that scene sucks. That seems too on the nose <laughs> and it's cheesy and that music does not work. With the all. use of that song, I just imagine Abel Ferreira like watching that air and be like, what the fuck is this? You know, just like freaking out that they made the decision to put that on there. I realized just real quick, I want to say we've been sort of just talking about the minutia of this thing for like 40 minutes now or whatever. I should tell anyone listening who hasn't seen crime story. I have the uh, shout factory put out a box set of the whole series on DVD, which is now probably 10 years old, but it's also, you can watch it for free uh, with an Amazon prime account. And it is kind of awesome. It's what if heat were set in the early sixties, but shot in the eighties, like that's, kind of the vibe and it is it's very good and it's very much worth the hour and 45 minutes it will take you to watch at least the pilot uh, i think it's super well done i think it it's way more sophisticated than i expected it to be as a tv pilot from 1986 or whatever i'm not i think that's right but yeah another another line uh, from that he shares with crime story is uh when mike goes into scan the department store where they know luca's going to hit it and he says, when they walk out of there, they're going to get the surprise of their life. Surprise That's of their exactly life. exactly what Fitzanana says. Most of my notes uh, I have here in my yellow legal pad are just lines that pop up either also in Heat or in other Michael Mann movies. I mean, there's a ton of, but it's also like, I mean, you've got the outside world of this too, right? Like the idea that like David Caruso's character has his own subplot that kind of mirrors the dude that ends up being the driver and he, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like just these ideas that these other criminals are like living this life outside. John Polito is in Crime Story and he's amazing as basically the crime boss of Chicago, right? Like he's, he's at first you think he's just the fence and then you realize that he's like actually like in, he's fencing this, this stuff from the heist from them because he's actually like in charge of everything. The interplay between Ray Luca and the Polito character is great. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot going on in this. And the action sequences are super sophisticated. The opening sequence, uh, the opening heist is, is genuinely scary, as I mentioned. The car chase feels sophisticated, complex, believable, like genuinely dope action. And then the yeah, shootout, great geography. And, you always know yeah, what's the, happening. The, the choreography in the in the high sequence in the department store, that's better than than like, I don't know, a lot of action movies I see that come out in cinemas still now. I mean, I feel like you always know where you are in the space. Good stunts. That's I don't know. I mean, for something that was on TV, so you can't have like elaborate peck and paw style squibs or whatever. It's and pretty it, great. And it even has a ghost cop on top of everything else. <laughs> little Shakespearean scene where the the dead cop you know appears in front of Torello to make him sad oh yeah I forgot about that we should say a little bit too about uh Ray Luca the antagonist of the 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 piece made by Tony Dennison with the um, unbelievable hair I mean just like that pompadour whatever it is just (laughs) I don't know how it just seems to defy gravity even especially when he's cooking the steaks to like get the 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 stolen goods out of the front of the, uh, the middle of the a, frozen stakes such it's a good like, detail by the way caruso's <laughs> hiding 
hiding the, the uncut jewels from a heist in a frozen like roast like a piece like a of rack meat. of it's, steak it's, yeah yeah amazing <laughs> It's terrific, but he's great, and uh, one of the most badass moments of any Michael Mann production is, uh, you know, where Trello knocks him down, fires a fires a shot right next to his head, he barely flinches. That's like, wow, this is a guy that you want to stick with, you know, for the remainder of the show, you know that he's someone you can't fuck with. I love that uh, Polito, you know, hooks him up with Joseph Wiseman, Dr. No himself, you know, at the end, kind of a Meyer Lansky type of character, who even calls a wise man. It, it, like, <laughs> like good, good work, guys. But you know, kind of like sets the scope of this thing. No, setting the scope of the thing up, and and the idea that like Lucas, Mike Torello is a great character, and you see that like he's going to play both sides of the law. The whole they set up a lot of things. The whole thing with the guy who's the defense attorney for some of these lower level criminals, and he starts having an antagonistic relationship with him. He lies on the stand and then admits it to the lawyer outside of the courtroom. Like, yeah. That's how I put these people in jail. And sometimes I let them off just so I can use them because now I know he's part of this. Like just, he'll just do illegal things because it's like, you know, for the greater good. I mean, he doesn't say for the greater good, but that's the idea. But He's cynical, but he knows how to work the system at the same time. But Luca too. Luke, watching Luca over the course of the pilot, it's really interesting because he's a criminal and he's cold-blooded. Like he murders Torello, not Torello's partner, but one of the guys on on his team. But then you see him start, like this this realization that he could be bigger than what he is. Like he's he's aspirational. He wants to move up in a he's kind of like a freelance crook. And he realizes that there's bigger opportunities for him. And that's his arc over the pilot is he not only does he go to John Polito, but then Polito turns him on, like you were saying, to this guy down in Miami where it's just like, dude, why are you even on the street? Like, why are you pulling heat? Like, just you're a manager, man. Like, set yeah. up these crew. he's like Michael Mann. You're really good at spotting talent. Why don't you just let them do the thing and you can sit, you know, down here. Your wife likes it, Miami. You can be operating down here, man. Yeah. Even it's the great. wife character has depth and is interesting. Luke yeah, she's wife. terrific. She yeah, she reminds me of like a character from like the Wanderers or something, you know, kind of this <laughs> sad kind of holdover from the fifties, you know, sort of, you know, doo-wop gal who's kind of now stuck in this terrible well, in marriage with this terrible person, you know, and it's just not gonna end well for her. But yeah, Stephen Lang as the lawyer. I just had to point out the redheaded lawyer who believes everyone is like, you know, entitled to their, their day in court. He's Daredevil, basically, right? He's Matt Murdock. <laughs> he was in the show. But yeah, I mean, we could spend all day just kind of talking about all the characters that get introduced in this pilot. Like I was saying about Heat, one of the great things that the reason that it's always so returnable is that, you know, every single character is so interesting, you know, on their own. Just the moment with uh, Tom Sizemore, giving that guy the side glance in the diner, like, you know, that says... You don't want a part of this, you know, that's just little moments like that. So we don't get as many little moments in this um, series specifically. It's, you know, really focusing on Farina and his personal relationship with his wife and his job and everything like that. His crew, which includes Paul Butler, who his name does not get brought up a lot, even though he's the the star. Well, Danny Glover, the co-star of Sleep With Anger, the Charles Burnett movie, and was like a David Mamet regular and was in The Insider uh, as the cigar chomping cop who I think is just on hand to murder people. <laughs> it really is. He's got a shotgun, the elevator doors open and boom, he blows somebody away while he's still chomping on the cigar. He's kind of like the executioner of the crew. And he's all, it's always with the shotgun. I feel like, like he's, yeah. he's like, he's the heavy, you know, he's, that's, that's what he does. Yeah. That's yeah. His, his, his trademark weapon. Michael, Bill, what's my motivation here? You're the, you're the guy with the shotgun. That's what, what else do you need? <laughs> <laughs> you got a cigar and you got a shotgun. Let's execute. Lee Marvin uh, telling a story about, and that's not Lee Marvin, it's actually, it's either Robert Carradine or Mark Hamill or somebody from the uh, Big Red One 
telling a story about how um uh one, one of them got a tommy you know it probably wasn't either of them it was the other actor whose name i can't think of but he, he gets a tommy gun right he's the part of like a five person squad in this movie and the other guys are pissed off they're like why don't we get like a why do we have to have rifles why don't we have a tommy gun this is bullshit this is a rifle this is a rifle unit nobody would have a tommy gun prop department fucked up like take that away from him and lee marvin who's of course been like you know sitting there with his eyes closed everyone assumes he's just you know sleeping it off just says just shouts out hey idiots i was in a fucking rifle squad there's always somebody on tommy gun shut the fuck up (laughs) bill smitrowitz if that's how you say it uh it's funny because he's also a cop in the miami vice pilot and then that character disappears um but he's kind of like the number two guy who's basically there to stop torello and uh and and clemens the paul butler character from flat out murdering people he's the one who talks him down from <laughs> killing uh, the angel yeah, on his shoulders like... he's the one who talks him down from killing ray luca at the end and then you got uh wes the guy the guy gets gunned down in the phone booth played by william russ from cruising the right stuff and of course miami vice and wise guy and all the shows that these guys were doing but and, so uh, one of the um it's, he's incredibly young in this but uh prez from the wire uh prez Belusky, is one of the two criminals that Luca ends up having to execute. Uh, like oh, I didn't recognize guys. him. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's Jim. Uh, he's called. He's got a different name here, but his name is Jim True Frost. I think it's just Jim. He's credited as Jim True in this. I think, but uh, oh, cool. Yeah, he's, he's the guy I mean, who ends up being a teacher on the show. Is that the the character? Yes, I think the right yes, guy. Yes, 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 okay, yeah, he's yeah. like at first they they all think he gets to get taken off the street. I guess in the wire, and then eventually, yeah, he eventually. Yeah, joins yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're thinking of the right guy, Prez. But yeah, but these are the guys who you know stand up and, and pose while uh, Del <laughs> Del Shannon is playing at the beginning, you know. Uh, and so you know, it's it's a really nice kind of setup for this crew, where again, it, it focuses pretty much 100% on Torello and they're kind of background guys, but they're strong enough and interesting gang of actors that you're like, I you know, I'm into like seeing more and having these characters develop a little bit, except for Wes, who gets blown away, obviously. It's really nice to watch it and to feel like no matter, I mean, this has got to go through a network. This has got to like adhere to the standards of 1980s TV, even if it's breaking the mold in some ways, but just the idea that like, and Abel Ferrara directed it, even though Michael Mann clearly had a heavy creative hand, but the idea that these preoccupations can echo, I mean, I, uh, I've said this before, but when I was younger, I already knew I loved movies and I knew I wanted to try to like, you know, I was, I had, I, this idea I was going to go to film school from like a young age, but like one of the first things where I sort of realized what a director did was a just I watched Goodfellas a lot, so everything Thelma and Marty did on Goodfellas was like the idea of like how you can be a presence in a story. But the real thing was I loved Last of the Mohicans. Like I saw it like when it first came out on video, and then I saw Heat in the theater, and the I, putting it together that those two films one of which takes place in the you know whatever like three or four hundred years ago and the other one takes place in contemporary LA but they feel the same they have this similar feeling like the cinematography the image but it's not it transcends just the imagery it's like the tone or I, I don't know what it is it's this thing that Wong Kar Wai can do it's this thing David Lynch can do it's this it's like they just they own the way the combination of image and sound makes you feel inside the idea that it was the same person that made them like that was like I was like oh that's what a filmmaker is like somebody that can take two stories that have 
fundamentally nothing in common and make them feel the same thing. And another comparison between those two things, this is the other thing I was telling you about it a couple of weeks ago. I wanted, I want another one of those Marcus pins side by sides, the elk hunt at the beginning of Mohicans. And then when Hannah, after Neil gets away in the central shootout, and then he ends up killing Cerrito, mm-hmm. the shot of the elk hunt and the buildup and the actual shot itself of the kills from those two sequences are literally identical. He just is because remade... Hawkeye gets like in front of the elk and it kind of turns as it, yeah, as he, but it's at that, it. but it's also the yeah. actual shot and like the pace. If you line them up, it'll fe- it'll like the shots last the same length of time. There's the same like it sort of switches into slow motion after he fires and then he's still looking at what happens and you see the smoke clear. Like it's there. I, I just the idea that he's just reworking these things over and over again, or he'll find something he likes. He's like, let's do that again. You know, it's I don't know. Those are both Spinati shot, by the way. Okay. Too. Well, now I got to go on to like a little side thing again. <laughs> it's just uh, from day one that when I saw Heat in the theater, first day, something I've thought about a lot anytime I think about that movie is Cerrito picks up the little girl, right, as he's running away. And my thought is like, is he getting her out of the way or is he, you know, using her as a hostage or like a little bit of both? Like I've always been kind of curious, like what his psychology is in that moment, because we don't know quite enough about him. We know he's a family guy. He's got he kids. Has kids. Yeah. Yeah. So he might very well care enough to, you know, really want to like save her from getting, you know, a stray bullet in the head or something like that, even though she works as a shield at the same time. It's funny to watch L.A. Takedown where it's clearly he goes out of his way to like pick her up and like use her as like a hostage. I, I like that ambiguity, though. I really love that ambiguity from Heat where it's like you don't really know what his what he's thinking. I mean, in the moment, you know, maybe he's kind of thinking a little bit of everything. But, you know, I kind of like tend to give him the benefit of the doubt and think he's clearing her out of the way so she doesn't get hurt. It's funny that you had that reaction because I've all, I, I also, in all things, prefer ambiguity, but I... <laughs> Never felt like that was that interesting. I was like, interesting, and it's why well, I always thought it was funny because I always found it to be a reminder of like, no, this dude is a bad dude. Like right. this is, I, it's also funny to think about because you're wa- reading Heat too, which we were talking about at the beginning, and just they had him, and in the movie Heat at the metal depository, like the SWAT leader is like, I'm not going to let him walk. That's exactly what you're going to do. He's going to walk like that whole thing. But then, so then a week later. They let him, they had him and they let him walk. And then a week later, nine cops are dead. A right. bunch of civilians are dead. And he's got and a like, lot to answer there's, for. there's no fallout. He's just still running around, throwing people off roofs, hunting them down. <laughs> like, it's just, why is this? I know. And when does Hannah sleep is my other question for Heat, too. Like, he immediately goes to, like, grill Edie about, you know, Neil and all this stuff. He's like, he, he doesn't go back home and grabs, even okay. says in Heat, why well, I'm going to go home and sleep for five days or whatever the line is. But, they but then he doesn't. It. And Heat, too, he's, he's immediately going to, yeah. like, when Chris. he's younger, he's doing blow, and then when he's older, he's doing uh, Natalie Portman's Adderall. Like he's they have this whole <laughs> section where he's like, oh, he took a couple. There's like three different scenes where he's waiting for the Adderall to kick in so he can like you know do his job. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah. So I guess it's just like you know me kind of again kind of thinking about man's you know saying you know cops crooks what's the difference you know maybe a cop is a little maybe a cop isn't so good maybe a crook isn't so bad you know. Uh, maybe that's the reason I always kind of want to give him the benefit. But anyway, that's the side thing. And uh, and crime story is, you know, he's no less reckless than Hannah. I mean, with the whole setup at the department store, how did civilians not get killed? I mean, it's a crowded store. No, or, you know, and, <laughs> and how is the plan just, no, 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 no. We're going to let him come in here. And, like, you could stop this at any point. You know in advance it's going to happen, but they want to get him. So they're going to put all of these civilians at risk, like just. Yeah. Madness. And when things go bad, guards get shot. I mean, you know, like you said, 
some of them re recognize right away this isn't you know the plan's not going to work you know we were walking but you get that one twitchy guy who's like you know what the hell we're doing we're here we're doing this like right now yeah. and just pulls out his gun and then the poor guy behind him who's just like shit i guess we're doing this you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i guess is that you know i gotta follow the lead here um but yeah that's a fantastic action sequence even just stuff on the street, you know, and stuff with the intrigue with Polito's character, kind of when the, the cops nab him and put him up on top of the water tower, you know, after he's threatened the family of David Caruso is a uh, very thuggish behavior to say the least, but that's a, that is a gorgeous shot. I, I should point out oh, when, when they pull, they pull they back, pull back the and they're climbing tower, down yeah. off of the ladder and he's screaming. I found myself wondering how they do shot. that. Was that like, it seemed like that was, must've been built. I mean, I'm sure it was cheaper to just find a way to do it on location, but it looked very elaborate. And like it to get was, the perfect yeah. silhouette of the ladder. I'm like, was this, was this like built as a model or something? Or is this a matte? It's not. Yeah, I, think it a, it's, yeah. I think it's just a water tower, but who knows? But no, but they just shot it gorgeously. So I mean, yeah, that's things like that are incredibly cinematic in this uh, in this episode. It's really sophisticated. Again, I, I keep saying I'm not a a television historian, so I don't I'm try I don't know anything to compare it like a two hour long pilot to launch an elaborate series like this. But to, watching it out, it feels so sophisticated that it doesn't feel da dated. I mean, there's obviously it's four by three, it's SD, yada yada yada. But like it, the 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 story mechanics. And the cinema, uh, the cinematic nature of it feels super sophisticated and almost modern. Well, it's funny you say modern because, you know, obviously you said TV shows these days, this is all they do is like one big story, you know, told out over, you know, however many episodes, because I hate it. <laughs> I can't stick with it. I can't no, stick with it. I, yeah, I, it's so rare that I see something now where I'm like, I mean, I've, I've watched plenty of series, but they, they all feel they just don't feel good. They feel bad. There's very few where I'm like this, this is the, you know, this is the thing. And the ones that I like are usually more in that, like, you know, eight episode limited set. Like this is still one complete story. It's structured to like ends. Do you know what I mean? Like that, mm -hmm. those are at least a little bit better, but. Um, oh man. I mean, after sitting, hate watching, you know, the garbage pile that was Star Trek Picard and then not enjoying discovery either. And again, with these big whole season stories, it was such a relief to watch um, Strange New Worlds where they were isolated ep stories, you know, with, with the crew. And we're like, thank God we're back to basics here. This is sort of villain of the week, monster of the week type stories. It's funny that like now I want to go back to that. You know, I want to go back to like the, the standard and not have this, you know, this thing that Michael Mann was clearly ahead of the game on, you know, be the thing anymore. And again, this is pre-Twin, like, I feel like Twin Peaks is referenced a lot as the thing that, like, I guess because Twin Peaks was a sensation in the way the crime story wasn't, like, but, mm -hmm. but it, it's, I feel like when you, you know, people talk about the Sopranos and the quote, I'm not using this phrase, but people you do, the golden age of, the new golden age of television or whatever, and like, you know, that, the idea of that starting with the Sopranos, and it's always like, I feel like when they talk about it, it's always like, well, Twin Peaks did the start of this serial thing, and I guess because it became a phenomenon, but I feel like the, it lost its audience fairly quickly, Twin Peaks, once it really... Oh, yeah, had, everyone turned on Twin Peaks, sure. Yeah, like, real quick, so, but I guess Crime Story never even, I mean, it did okay at the beginning, but it lost its audience quick, but, uh, but the network shuffled around the schedule. They tried yeah. it, they had it after Miami Vice, where it was doing great with Vice as a lead-in, and then they moved it. And then because it was a serial, when they started moving it around, that's what made them have to drop off some of the serialized nature of the storytelling because they were worried that they had lost the audience. And of course, in those days, you can't 
on demanded or no one was videotaping it or whatever. So right. and they moved it against moonlighting, which was, you know, ABC's juggernaut at the time. Yeah. So obviously it lost lost viewers at that point. But yeah, it's classic, it's Bruce, you know, network. Bruce Willis's fault. This is all Bruce Willis's fault. <laughs> it's why Bruce Willis never starred in a Michael Mann movie. <laughs> or Simple Shepherd. Um <laughs> not sure that's the only reason. <laughs> so yeah, so you would rank this high on the Michael Mann echelon more or less would you i say? would definitely say that if you're like a man fan and if like you're leading towards like the man crime stuff so if you like vice if you like heat if you like collateral whatever like watch this i think this is as all of us have had this experience of sitting down and like oh i don't know what to watch and you're scrolling through a bunch of things watch crime story it's kind of dope it's like it's i don't know it, it doesn't feel like you know how sometimes like you it's like oh i'm supposed to the seventh seal I'm supposed to watch it. And it's good, but it also feels like homework before you start it. It feels like this thing I have to do. Crime Story is not like that. It's thoroughly enjoyable. It's not It's not homework. It's just a dope crime movie. Yeah, I, know. I kind of feel like you don't need to bring your Michael Mann appreciation into this to enjoy it. You know, I mean, it would certainly be interesting, you know, It'll, for it, if, you're, if you're a man fan who has not seen it, see it. But if you're just somebody who likes television shows about cops and crooks i would I'll, I'll take this over ncis or i'm not sure if i even have that acronym right but any of those shows any day of the week <laughs> or even other michael mann produced shows i mean i don't know i mean they're again he was so prolific at this time i don't know what did i'm supposed to think about drug wars the camarena story or robbery homicide division which he did in the early aughts you know like i don't know yeah, what the, I, the repetition of those shows are at all. I but really I, want to see Robbery Homicide Division. I feel like it's probably not great or whatever, but it's definitely like using later television technology. I mean, you watch that Tokyo Vice pilot he just did, and that was great. And you get the sense that he's just, he's like, oh, I have a playground to play in where I can really push some of this new sort of cinematic abstraction that started with Vice and very much Black Hat. There's lots of scenes that where it's just really using digital and pushing it to like kind of almost an experimental degree and things are just consisting of shots are consisting of negative space. And then the character fills the frame and he's really getting to play around with that. The sound design in the Tokyo vice pilots. Amazing. Yeah. But, too, um, much, too much Gaijin, not enough. Ken Watanabe was sort of, my yeah, review. I know, but it, I, I know what you're saying. It feels like man has always wanted to expand and, you know, kind of move beyond his own borders. He's definitely wanted to like get into other cultures and like you said, that expanding that space, I think, is a big deal for him. Seeing how, you know, culturally different people operate, you know, I mean, he's kind of cornered the market on, you know, sh depicting cops and crooks in American cops and crooks specifically. But, you know, kind of taking that to a different country, taking it either he's going down south or if he's going across, you know, all the way across the world to Japan. I, I think that that's his, been his ambition all along. And I think that's the reason why it's been so hard for him to get so many of his projects off the ground because of the scope. You know, and, and even back in the 80s, he had problems with like the studio, the network, whatever, could not see the big scope that he had for this. You know, they only saw it on individual. How's this week's episode? You know, how does it look? Can audiences follow this week's episode? And it's like he was going for something bigger. And I think that's almost been a detriment to his career is that like if he goes big and no one else is willing to go with him, it's just going to fall apart. And, you yeah, know? you can't. Everybody's got to be on board to make it work. And it is it's also it is unfair to position him as just the cops and crooks guy. I mean, I know that. It felt awards baity and because they're back to back insider and Ali, uh, it feels like that was a period in his career. But like those are genuine stuff like insider to me 
is my favorite Michael Mann, Dante Spinati collaboration. And I know what that means. That means I'm ranking it above Manhunter and Heat and Mohicans. And those all feel like Manhunter's got more of an 80s vibe. Heat is amazingly shot. It's insane. Shots have a, again, they have a, shots that are otherwise almost benign, have this like emotional weight to them. I think about like that telephoto lens shot at the beginning when Neil gets off the off the train in the opening title sequence. And he just sort of like, a, like at first it seems like it's a shot of another woman who's slightly soft focus. Then Neil comes out the door and he's in sharp focus. But like the way that makes you feel when it's in conjunction with the score. And I don't know, all that stuff is working so great. But to me, the, the, the insider stuff is phenomenal. And I think that those, those movies get a short shrift. Like what he can do stylistically isn't limited to crime movies. Yeah, I know, it's funny uh, yeah. when, when you brought up Mohicans. Even I even had the thought that like it's funny that I never think of if people, someone's like, "Tell me what Michael Mann did," and I'll be like, "Oh, he did Thief and Manhunter and Heat and like Mohicans almost gets forgotten," which is hilarious because it's a fucking masterpiece. And the it's last funny reel that, of that movie is, is as exciting as anything in American cinema. I know that I, I have a tendency <laughs> to say hyperbolic shit. I know, but I'm telling you, like from the moment they leave the fort until the end of that movie, it is insane. Yeah. And that movie's got its own problems politically. And I know it's a movie about Native Americans starring a white guy. And some of that traces back to the Fenimore Cooper novel and all of that. But he did his best to transcend that. They really try to make it acceptable. But just on a cinematic, stylistic level you alone. You cannot it, deny that it's movie. It's undeniable. It's amazing. Yeah. But it's funny that like Michael Mann is has such a huge career that he basically has a masterpiece that you forget about. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like exactly. A brilliant film that just is on the side. Like, oh, by the way, I also shot, you know, this a, this film that is better than anything else you've ever seen. It, it's 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 crazy to think about that and how he does a movie like Mohicans, it feels effortless, you know, like when he's doing things where he's experimenting, especially, you know, when he started shooting on digital and the sound designs and everything like that, when he really got more experimental. And you thought, well, any flaws in this are because he was trying something and maybe just didn't get there. But, you know, if he just wanted to do just a classical, great romance war film, he could do it. Like, he just doesn't want to do that every single time. He wants to, like, challenge himself, do something different, open that space. And that's, you know, why he's always going to be interesting, you know, as an artist and as a as a filmmaker. Yeah, there's a... I, I, I at the risk of restarting rebooting this conversation but there's a scene in LA Takedown where there's a kiss I'm pretty sure it's between uh the Neil character who's Pat and the Edie character and it's it's like the prototype for the kiss sequence in Mohicans where they're sort of passionately kissing and then they and then they embrace like there's it's 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 like this sort of like romantic thing that he's done many times. Like the kiss gets so intense that then it becomes this melding into each other. But it's it's again, it's just one of these images you just end up seeing over and over again. It's this thing he's got in his head that he keeps either trying to work out or trying to perfect. I remember I, someone laughed at me when I said this once, but the things that are interesting about man, they're it's like the things that are interesting about Fossbender or some anybody that's just got like I've just looked, I'm just working out. You know, Fassbender's like, I'm obsessed with the politics of the, the the horrible politics of interpersonal relations and the hierarchies within any, you know what I mean? Like, and I'll just, I'll work that out over 37 movies. And like, <laughs> man's just got this shit he's into and you just watch it. It plays out in, you know, in the French and Indian War and it plays out on the streets of LA during a gunfight, but it's the same stuff over and over again. And it's, to me, it's fascinating. I agree. And since you brought it up, <laughs> because you brought it again, it's fair game. You know, it's 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 easy to trash LA Takedown, obviously, in comparison to Heat. I will say though, 
the moment where he chases Edie out of the house, where she runs away from him, the shot in LA Takedown is better. It's better. I was thinking the same thing. It's <laughs> so clearly supposed to be the same thing. Like it's like, where is that wheat field in yeah. LA? Why are there houses like up? I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't understand LA. I've, I've always been an East Coast guy, so I, I'm sure that makes more sense if I was like an LA guy. But like, say. It's but it's um no, but it's clearly supposed to be like the same style location and the LA takedown one is better. I mean, though it the script is almost unshared. There's a couple elements that are obviously different, and he added things and he expanded it a little bit. There's no real Van Zant character like in LA Takedown, but it's such a you should show those things to film students. Because LA Takedown sometimes feels like a student film. It feels like, oh, these are the best actors we could get, but the script is there, and I think it could really it's really illuminating to see like what, I mean, it's not just Pacino and De Niro are more charismatic and better performers than those guys, but it's also like, who knows what would have happened if he had had $60 million in these actors and Dante Spinati to shoot it and filmic technology from six years later and all that. Speaking of filmic technology, pretty sure heat was cut on a flatbed, like on a steam back or a movie. Wow. Like sure. that's, it's one of the last things, like I'm not, I'm not positive, but I still think that that was, before the switchover that is crazy to me just the idea that they're still basically making this like they made that with like the same technology that like charlie chaplin was using yeah it's funny just you mentioning that makes me like immediately like an instant mem in my head of val kilmer looking confused which he does a few times in that movie like hmm. <laughs> didn't think about that any last thoughts on crime story the pilot episode i think um, people should watch it and it is available on amazon prime I've, I didn't realize that. So I, I kind of want to go back and watch the whole first season again and uh, just kind of see how that whole thing gelled because there are a lot more interesting actors pop up throughout. So even just as sort of as a, a time marker, you know, it's interesting to check out. But it's like Vice. Would you ever see that? It's like it. one of those, it's on, it pops up on Twitter sometimes, but just like that compilation video of uh, every actor who ever appeared on the four seasons of Miami. It's like Torturo. <laughs> Everybody. I think Bruce Willis was in, well, I don't know. Like there's just, uh, maybe, so maybe Bruce Willis wasn't a Michael Mann production. Maybe I'm making <laughs> that up though. I don't know. There's just, it just feels like every awesome actor from the last 40 years had one Miami Vice episode. Phil Collins. Yeah. Not that Phil Collins is one of the great actors of the last 40 years, but he, <laughs> but he did appear on a Miami Vice episode. The Buster has its fans. I know that much. Uh, <laughs> when I was reading Heat 2, the ball busting chief in Chicago, I was immediately like, that's Ron Dean. You know, like that's just immediately who pops up into my head. Most Chicago character actor of all time. And then I watched the pilot of Crime Story and was like, oh, there he is playing there the ball is. busting chief. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all connected. It's all, like you said, it's the Michael Mann universe. And we're all just just having a little, little walk through it. It's always a satisfying walk. And uh, it's fun to revisit as well. All right. Well, this was, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll do this any day of the week if you want me to just show up and talk about Michael Mann. We should do this again when uh, Ferrari's coming out. Absolutely, yeah. Love talking man with you. I'd love talking about anything with you, Eric. It's always fantastic to have you on. Uh, what else is going on? Anything else that you wanted to pitch or plug before we wrap things up? Well, I guess I could just one more time reiterate the midnightinthegestroom.substack.com if you want to get a free vinyl curated mix in your inbox every month. We've got 11 of them up so far. Plus, I did a bonus episode that was all Joe Strummer for Joe Strummer's 70th birthday. So if you feel like rediscovering The Clash, that's a good one, too. They're all up at midnightintheguestroom.substack.com. Nice. I just watched Bring It On With My Kids and had to do, explain to them who The Clash was. They were not excited to hear. 
Is that one of those movies where the clash is used as a signifier to show that the guy is cool? It's on his t-shirt. Yeah. And she, she does not know who they are. And it's meant to be like, check out this chick. She doesn't even know who the clash is. Um, but it's great. I love that. Movie. It's, I'm not gonna uh, talk I, about it. It, it's hard when things become canonical and then you forget how good they are. Like the clash are good. I know that they're like them and the talking heads are shorthand for something now, but like, they're awesome and they're weird. All right, last thing. I saw Heat in the new 4K restoration. It's playing, it's still running at IFC because it's making so much money because so many people want to see Heat. And I know this movie, like I said, as well as I know anything, but I watch it with an audience. And it was very clear that some people in the audience had not seen Heat because during that amazing shot where it blows out white and you think he's like going to heaven or whatever that, that you know, and then and then he decides, you see all the act, all the performance on his face, and then it's like, nope. I'm going to fucking kill Wayne Grove. Fuck that guy. And then he, he makes the decision that's going to like cause his tragedy. When he swerves the car, there were like audible gasps from four different parts of the theater. Like these were people that did not know he was going to do that. And it was so much fun to watch the movie with people that hadn't seen it. But the other great thing about it was it's been years since I've seen it in a theater. And it's such a canonical movie now. Like it's, it's everyone accepts it. Heat is one of the great American crime films. That's just something that people say, like The Godfather, Goodfellas, what have you. But to watch it, it's still man, and it's still weird. Like that overhead shot of the empty drive-in where they have the uh, where they're like ambushed by the like that opening shot is insane looking, and it looks even more insane when you see it in a the theater. Like seeing things in a the theater is still a great experience because it really things are meant they hit you in a different way. And I feel like even the man movies that you're used to or with the clash songs that you do anything in art that becomes canonical, you sort of forget the, the, the weird idiosyncrasies that made people excited about it in the first place. And a lot mm-hmm. of this visual abstraction that is very evident when you watch black hat or when you watch the Tokyo vice pilot, or when you watch Miami vice, the, the 2006 film, he's always been doing that. He's always been interested in these stylistic things. Technology's made it a little bit easier for him to like try some things. It's probably a little cheaper to just run the video camera on some weird angle than it is to, you know, do a full 35 millimeter setup shot. But like he is a pulpy movie, but it is a weird movie. It's got weird, his personality's all over it. It's got weird idiosyncrasies. We talked about the sound design and it's just really fun to, you, sometimes you got to pull back from it. You know what I mean? And to mm-hmm. sort of forget what you know and how you feel about it now and when things build reputations it makes them you end up seeing the reputation more than you see the piece of work itself to me heat is i remember thinking it was weird and specific and seeing it in the theater again made it me feel like it was weird and specific and i feel that about crime story too i mean this is a specific take on the idea of a cop and a criminal and his personality comes through in it and i think that's what's really cool about it and I think it's important too to say it was there from the beginning, you know, because you get lost in like his obsessions and him kind of telling the same sort of story over and over again. But there's a moment very early in the Miami Vice pilot of the TV show where I was watching it on TV and I thought there was something wrong with my screen. Like suddenly like the color changed. And I was like, what the hell's what the hell is this? And I realized that a car's headlight had moved into the camera. And so we were seeing like a headlight just full on blasting, you know, the lens of the camera. And so it had this weird look to it for a good 10 seconds. And 
I, again, he didn't direct that pilot episode. He's not the director, but he clearly is somebody who he let that when in. He saw yeah. that in there. He was like, I love it. You know, yeah. that's what I want in, in my show. You know, people will love the soundtrack. They'll love the pet alligator, whatever. But they're like main like these. These this is what defines me as an artist is like keeping stuff like this in here and making it weird, just like you said. That's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to walk. I have tactical command that supersedes your rank. They will walk away, and you will let them fuck. I see with them seeing each other, but not seeing each other while he's no, in the back of the but truck. That's, is, that's, that's cinema, shit. man. That's like it is that's, that's the real shit. 